you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Special thanks to Pastor Dan last week for stepping in kind of at the last minute. Uh, that, was, that was the first time I've missed Sunday morning for the flu since January of 1997. I was a lot sicker in the 97 version of it. I remember uh, my fever getting up to 104 that week, uh, which was, uh, th- that's not good for an older person. Uh, I wasn't that old then, but it's not even good if you were in your uh, 30s or early 40s at, th- at that time. But all of that to say, it's great to uh, be back, and thanks, Dan, uh, for uh, filling in uh, as he as he did. Um, now, had I been here last week, it would have been perfect. We would have finished the Gospel of Mark off right before Advent, but now we'll have one, one extra paragraph hanging for later in the year, and next week we'll go into an Advent series. And for the first time, for the very first time in my life, we're going we're gonna to preach the Advent calendar texts in Advent. Now, that kind of innovation um, is a bit of a stretch, but we're going we're gonna to try it. And so uh, next week, when you uh, are able to be here, we will be, uh, we will be right there in the book of Isaiah for the first uh, Advent text from the calendar. Let's stand together. Mark eight thirty one to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, the psalmist asks very appropriately for a a Sunday in which we go to the Lord's table. Who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell in the mountain of your holiness? Who are really your people? Who properly have a seat at your table? And you tell us that it's those walking blamelessly. It's those doing righteousness. It's those 
speaking truth in their heart. It's those who don't take up slander upon their tongue. Father, we pray that we would be found among those, your new covenant people, those upon whose hearts you have written your law, your instruction, your word. Lord, may we not be among those who do to our neighbor evil, who don't lift up reproaches against those who are close to us. For we live in a culture where the reproach is lifted up all around, where lies are told regularly, where slander in the news media and elsewhere across our culture is as common as the grass. May we be distinguishable from such a culture and from such practices. Um, Lord, those who practice such things are despised in the eyes of your people. But we are those who set glory upon those who fear your name, who are generous and kind and not prone to take bribes against the innocent for any reason. And you assure us that those who practice these sorts of things will never stumble and never fall. Lord, on this Thanksgiving weekend, we do thank you for your word, as we've already sung. We thank you, Lord, for a word like this that shows us the path of assurance and hope and life and peace and pray that you would enable us to be kept by your grace, by the power of your Spirit, on that path, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We talk often when we speak about our cultural moment of secularism because we live in very secularizing times. Uh, it's a trend. Western culture, especially Europe, the United States, is becoming increasingly, measurably secular and secularized, which is exactly the opposite uh, mindset of the mindset that is reflected in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, for central to his mindset and what he recommends to anybody who will listen to him is that our mindset be controlled by what he calls in this text or summarizes in this text simply as the things of God, the things 
of God. Mark again, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And then the summary of this satanic thinking is this. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's the very essence of the secular narrative. So when it is said that Europe and the United States are becoming increasingly secular, what's being said is that we are nations that are setting increasingly less and less emphasis and thought on the things of God. The things of God are diminishing. The things of God are shrinking. And the things of God are the only ground for any meaning, lasting hope. So the stuff of meaning and lasting hope is is shrinking at the same time. We mentioned, I don't know how many times, that sort of secular hymn written by John Lennon, right? His most famous lyrics, probably. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. And then very fitting for the wording of our text. Imagine all the people. Imagine all the people living for today. That's exactly what Jesus is talking to Peter about. Peter's tendency to think completely in terms of the things of man, the things of people, how you'd like things to go today. And Jesus labels that, as we'll see again a little bit later on. He labels that satanic. Satanic. He doesn't use the term secular. He uses the term satanic. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And that's always a danger for us. And that's the clear direction of the culture in which we live. Setting their minds on the things of men and ignoring the things of God. I'd state our thesis for this morning this way. We are called upon to think of all of life in line with the things of God. We'll come at this from three angles this morning. Number one, God has a plan. Verse 31, God has a plan. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days, rise again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, you could flesh this out a little bit, must necessarily suffer many things. It's a little tiny Greek word we've mentioned many times, prominent especially in, in Luke, uh, the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, but throughout the New Testament, the book of Revelation to a degree as well. It's a, uh, just a little Greek word, three letters in it. Um, day. It is necessary. And most of the time it means it is necessary within the determinant will of God. Um, That's what Jesus is referring to when he began to teach them that the Son of Man must necessarily must necessarily be arrested and killed eventually. Why? Well, because this is God's great plan of salvation and redemption. This is God's great plan for the hope of the world. And all hope is grounded in that plan, and what God does. The same, same little word is famously used there in John 3, 7, when Jesus says, don't marvel at this, you must, that is, you must necessarily be born again. Why? Well, because that's God's plan. That's God's plan. You must be changed from the inside out by the power of the Spirit, because that's who God saves. And no one else. So you must necessarily be born again. I've already mentioned that it's widely used in Acts. Acts 4.12, the word shows up again. Another very, very familiar verse. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must necessarily be saved. Jesus is God's plan. He's the only plan. There is no other name given under heaven among men. It's the necessary plan. Now, secularism, of course, is on the far side of that. It's as far away from that as as you can get. You know, the great summary we used all the time because nobody uh, puts it quite as well as the uh, German atheistic philosopher Martin Heidegger, uh, our existence is thrown and there's no thrower and there's no reason for the throw. So there's no plan. There's no purpose. There's no specific beginning. There's no specific end. Our existence is thrown. There's no thrower. There's no reason for the throw. There's no plan. There's no God. There's no purpose. There's no destination. That's secularism. That's secularism. And Jesus is about to argue that's actually a form of Satanism. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must necessarily suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. That was the plan. You notice on the bulletin there's a reference to uh, Psalm 118, 22 and following. I'll just read 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the, the plan that Peter hated. The builders are going to reject Jesus. No, no, Peter says, no. No, that's a bad plan. No, it's simply the fulfillment of God's plan. Psalm 118, 22. Oh, here it is. The stone which the builders rejected. This has become the cornerstone. And then verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It's his plan. It's his idea. He is carrying it out. What, what Peter takes great umbrage to, what he argues with, is nothing less than the plan of God. The Son of Man must suffer these things and be rejected by the elders. This is the plan of God. The stone that the builders rejected has become, through resurrection eventually, the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. Well, it was at the same time, of course, really the desire of the elders. It was really the desire of the chief police. It was really the desire of the Pharisees. They really did hate Jesus. They really did take exception to him. They really did want to kill him. But all of those attitudes were worked in, pulled into, and part of God's necessary plan. It was the Lord's doing, and it was indeed marvelous in his sight. For it's where all of our hope comes from. Sunday school, we've been in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's marvelous in his sight. He loves us. You see it in the plan. He released us from our sins. You see it in the plan. He made us a kingdom. You see it in the plan. He made us priests to his God. It's all right there in the plan, in this marvelous plan. And it ought to be marvelous in our eyes. Secondly, God's plan is often considered objectionable. God's plan is often considered objectionable. Peter hears this and he thinks, bad plan, terrible plan. I've never heard a more ridiculous plan What a stupid plan. And so Peter takes 
Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Would you quit talking that way? You're going to discourage the life out of everybody. And none of that is ever going to happen to you. The Lord would never come up with such a dumb plan as the one that you are talking like now. So stop it. That's what he says, basically. That's what he says. Uh, The idea of a rebuke is he refuses the plan. He censures the plan. The lexicons put it this way. He warns in order to prevent the plan from taking place. No, Jesus. He's a terrible plan. Bad plan. Dumb plan. We aren't doing that. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. You ever tempted to pull the Lord aside and have a talk with him about what seems to be his plan for your life when you don't like it all that well? I'm sure you have. Everybody in this room has things going on in your life right now Some of them may be extremely weighty. And it seems to you, seems to me, like an awful plan. Lord, what? What do you think you're doing? How can you think this? How can you think this is a good idea? I've mentioned many times before, our family went to work at a camp in the summer of 1972 down in New Mexico, about 25 miles south of Gallup. New Mexico, my my mom was the cook for the camp that summer. My dad was the head of the grounds crew. My brother, every other week, was a camp counselor and I was a junior member of the grounds crew. I just finished the eighth grade. I got the best job on the camp. I drove around. It's quite a few acres. And they had plants planted all over the place. And they had this old uh, 1955, 1956 uh, pickup truck that had a 50-gallon barrel of water in the back. And it was my job to drive that around and, uh, and water all the plants. Well, in the eighth grade, I never got to drive a pickup truck back in Illinois, and here I am down in New Mexico driving this pickup truck. It's my job. You know, I got this job driving the pickup truck. It was, it was a wonderful summer that way. And then what was supposed to happen at the end of the summer is that we would just go back to Illinois. My dad was going to go back to uh, a night school, and I would be attending uh, McHenry High School, uh, East High, there in McHenry, Illinois, and that was the plan. And then I, I've mentioned before, and then there I was in the men's restroom with probably a week to go in the summer, and one of the teachers comes in who's there to teach these kids for the week, and he turns to me as natural as can be. And said, so, 
What do you think about moving to Thetis Island, British Columbia? It's really beautiful there. I think you'll like it. And I'm looking around for who he's talking to. Like, what? Well, I'm, I'm, we're not going there. And then he says, whoops. I'm sorry. I thought you knew. I thought you already knew the Lord was flushing your life down the toilet. But I guess you didn't. Uh, and so, so, so here we are. Oh, he might as well have kicked me right in the gut. Like, like what? No. No, that, that can't be. But I instantly knew that it was. Even in the eighth grade, I'm enough a theologian to know this is the Lord's plan. I don't like it one little bit. But you know, the promise is, the promise is, it's a, it's a, a massive promise, right? It's we go to it all the time. It's an eighth chapter of Romans, you know, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It's, it's a great thing to remind yourself that in the moment, that not only doesn't look obvious, that often doesn't look possible. And that didn't look possible to Peter. Peter Peter can see no possible way that Jesus being hated, killed, and buried could work together for good. No possible way. But that's precisely, that's precisely what was happening. And it was for his good and for the good of the human race. Um, So we are prone to want our own plan. And being so prone, we are prone toward what, as we'll see, Jesus will label the satanic. Thirdly, God's plan is assailed by man-centered, satanic thinking. God's plan is assailed by man-centered, satanic thinking. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Jesus turns and he sees that Peter is uh, 
threatening the outlook of the rest of the disciples. He is teaching them that the Lord's plan is a lousy plan, a dumb plan, and that uh, he has much better ideas. I want you to notice. So what is satanic about Peter's plan? There's argument here whether or not uh, commentators uh, differ a little bit, though I, I, I I think it's relatively plain, right? That Jesus is, is not speaking beyond Peter directly to Satan, though some would argue that he is. But I think he's, te- he's speaking directly to Peter, who is acting in a satanic manner. And what's striking about the satanic manner is how non-satanic it, appear, it would appear to us. Just like it certainly didn't appear at all satanic to Peter. Peter was not one that was prone to run around imitating the devil. He is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has walked on the water. He has seen many miracles. He is, he is a disciple of Jesus. And yet here is Jesus... Saying to him, and I think saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he tells him what is satanic about him. And it's just this twofold thing. You don't care about the things of God. You only care about the things of man. That's what's satanic. Right? That's the essence of, 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 of the satanic. That's the satanic as you meet it in Genesis chapter 3. Has God really said? No! You can't trust what God has said. That's the very essence of the satanic. Can you trust Jesus' plan? No! No! It's a terrible plan. No! Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you don't care about the things of God. You don't care even to hear what God is doing, what God is thinking, what God is planning. But you're all excited about the things of men. Mentioned it countless times, right? The great parallel to this. Broadly speaking, is Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, you once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Those, that parallel. Don't miss it. What, what, is the, what does the course of the prince of the power of the air look like? What does the satanic course look like? Paul says, oh, it's simply the course of this world. It's simply the Roman Empire. It's simply, in our, it's, it's simply the American Empire. It's simply our secularizing trends. 
the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirits now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Um, the course of this world is, is, is simply mainstream human thinking. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's, again, John and John 5, 1 John 5. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world tremendously swallowed up by satanic thinking. Nobody calls it satanic thinking. We call it secular thinking. It's simply the things of men. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And, of course, the things of God that are central in this passage are exactly what takes us to the Lord's table. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here was God's plan. Sends his son into the world, lives this perfect life. He's rejected of men. Those who would most have, everybody would have expected to embrace the Messiah, love the Messiah, sign up for the Messiah, chief priests, the scribes, they reject him. The builders reject him. It was pleasing in the Lord's sight that they should. It's this marvelous, it's this marvelous thing. They've rejected him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. And see, from where we are, we look back and we see what a great plan the Lord had. If you're a Christian, you've embraced that plan. Your great hope is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, As Paul put it, I received from the Lord that which I also have given to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed... broke bread and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this for my remembrance. Likewise also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it for my remembrance. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the plan. Is that your plan? If you embrace that plan, then the the table is for you. 
I mentioned it when I read it earlier in the service, you know, Psalm 15. You know, who can, who can dwell in the Lord's tent? Who can come to his holy mountain? And then it lists off a whole series of things that do nothing but indicate new birth. New birth. People that do this and this and this. Not because they're earning anything, but because they're simply evidencing the fact that they've been born from above. That they have a, a new heart. That the Spirit of God has come inside of them. Well, that's the same criteria of the Lord's table. Uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So who's it for? New covenant people. Well, who are the new covenant people? Well, they are those upon whom the Lord has written the law of God upon their heart. And they have a heart for the things of God, ultimately speaking. If that's you, the table's for you. If you say, oh, no, I don't, I don't know, about, I don't know about, about all that. I do want to go to heaven when I die, but that's about the extent that I want to go. Then the table's just not for you. It's not who it's for. It's for those who've been born from above. It's these new covenant people with the law of God written on their heart. Um, and it's to strengthen their faith and hold them up. That's the men who will serve this morning to come. And let me just reread the opening section again from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord that which I have also given to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is in behalf of you. Do this for my remembrance. Men would stand, we'll ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Father, we thank you for your great promise that you did not spare your own son, but you delivered him up for us all, and how will you not with him then freely give us all things? Lord, we rest all of our hope in the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ in his atoning death, burial, and resurrection. We lay it there in Jesus' name. Amen.